I just wanted to mention before the um, altar boys come out here, so I could talk about them. Uh, I turned around to give the um, Holy Communion, and both the altar boys were kneeling, completely bowed down, almost to the ground. Poor fellows had to wait for me for quite some time because I think they started the confitier a little bit earlier, early, so that meant they had to wait for me to get the precious blood consumed, etc. But, uh, you know, really, what an edifying thing. There's two young men, I don't know, 12 years old and 8 years old or something like that, um, bowing down out of complete reverence to our Lord Jesus Christ as they recite the confitier and because they just know that's the right thing to do. Uh, that's magnificent. That's an inspiration. And I think we only find that at the traditional Latin Mass, that kind of faith and that kind of piety, that kind of conviction uh, from young men that still don't know what it all means, but they, um, they do it because they love God. And it's magnificent. So uh, today um, I start with uh, speaking about St. Philomena. You probably, probably remember the story of the cure of St. John Vianney. Uh, he had an altar of St. Philomena in his church already by the uh, permission of the Pope before Gregory XVI. I always forget which one that was. Uh, St. Philomena was not a canonized saint yet, but it was permitted to have altars in her honor, and St. John Vianney had one. And you probably remember, probably remember that story I was telling how um, he became very sick around the month of May. Uh, he was not able to deliver his whole sermon in honor of our Blessed Mother, month of May, Holy Rosary, etc. And uh, he was brought back to his quarters uh, where he kept getting sicker and sicker. He started having a failure of the um, organs and then pneumonia and... Uh, he was, the doctors, the physician said, we, there's nothing more we can do for him. He was given last rites. And then he was, St. John Vianney was praying very, uh, with a lot of confidence and hope in, uh, Saint, in God and in St. Philomena. And she appeared to him. She gave him a vision uh, where she said that uh, everything will be all right, but I ask you to continue to propagate the devotion to me. And that, that's not something selfish when a saint says that. In fact, it's anything but selfish. What they mean is, uh, since I have been this particular reflection of the glory of God in this particular way, uh, by the rest of you paying attention to that and giving honor to that, you're giving glory and um, honor to God in a very particular way, which gives him a lot of glory. That's why various saints have asked for devotion to them. It's not something selfish or proud. In fact, it's just the magnification of the glory of God, but through that person. So, of course, St. John Vianney agreed to that without any problem, and then he was miraculously cured. He felt strength in his body again. The doctors approved that he was um, on the way, on, on the mend. Uh, his pneumonia left. And within a few days, he was able to go to the church, spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. First of all, Blessed Sacrament exposed, uh, less than an hour, if I'm not mistaken. And then he went to the altar of St. Philomena, where he spent a long time on his knees, and he was still recovering from all those sicknesses. And when it was finished, he said, um, 
She spoke things to me that I, I could not even put into words. It gave such consolation. And we know that from there on out, uh, the church of ours, uh, the Curie of ours, St. John Vianney, began to be known as the church of the Curie of ours and St. Philomena, where they had up to 14 miracles per week. And the Curie would often say, it's not me, it's not me, it's St. Philomena that's doing that. We've talked about this sort of thing before, where he had people actually go home and be cured by St. Philomena at their home rather than in the church so as to not draw too much attention to himself. So with that in mind, I'd like to tell you uh, two of the more known conversion stories of um, people who went to ours with either an indifferent heart or a heart against God. And thanks to St. Philomena, they converted. The, fir the first one is from a certain Monsieur Massiat from Lyon. He wanted to go to the mountains for exploration. He was accompanied by a fellow traveler who suggested, since we're on our way to the mountains, we're going to pass ours. Would you like to spend some, some time there to meet the cure? Uh, and this man, Monsieur Massiat, said, I don't believe in miracles. I don't even believe in God. But if by bringing me to meet the curie, you think I'm going to believe in God, that would be a miracle. So finally he went skeptically, hesitatingly, with his friend to ours. They stayed overnight at a hotel. The next morning his friend said, well, would you please go to Mass with me? And he said, well, you didn't tell me that was in the deal. But he finally went with his friend and uh, um, heard Mass of the Holy Curie. His friend told him that uh, if he did go to Mass with him, he would see the Curie, and that would certainly impress him. So Monsieur Massiat sat near the sacristy. The Curie came out vested for Mass. His glance just passed over uh, Monsieur Massiat. And uh, the monsieur said that that one glance made me feel crushed beneath his gaze, like the man steer stared right into his soul. And all during the Mass, Monsieur Massiat was immovable. When Mass was finished, the curé cleared out the sacristy. He told everyone to get out. And then he opened the door, saw the monsieur at the pew, confronted him and said, please come into the sacristy. The man, the man immediately fell to his knees. Now remember, this is a, an indifferent man who said he didn't even believe in God. This man immediately fell to his knees and admit, admitted to the cure that he had a huge burden on his soul and started to confess his sins. It was all of his sins since his first Holy Communion. So we're talking about an adult man, at least 40, probably more like 50 years old. All of his sins that he could remember since his first Holy Communion. With every sin, his soul felt more and more relieved. The curie told him, come back tomorrow. I get the impression the curie was saying, I'll give you the forgiveness tomorrow. But that's not, that's not what's written. That's just an assumption that I'm making. The curie said, come back tomorrow. But first, 
go to pray for your conversion in front of the altar of St. Philomena. The man went to the altar, knelt before the image of St. Philomena, spent a long time there, and shed copious, ter copious tears there. And this man converted, and he was very happy to the end of his life. A very prayerful man to the end of his life. This was the most striking conversion at ours. Second story. This one was written by a religious, a man who became a, either a monk or a religious brother in one of the religious orders. He was rear, reared well by his mother, but in his adolescence, he soon became a hoodlum with other young hoodlums, uh, you know, misbehaving boys who tear up the neighborhood, that sort of thing, with many vices. His father didn't seem to care. Maybe that's part of the reason he became this way. But his mother was crushed. She reprimanded him, and he was un unhappy with that. The boy was, so he resolved to leave home to become a soldier. He thought that in the military he would have more liberty. His mother begged him first to go to ours with her, even if he didn't make a confession, just to go to that church in ours and see the cure would make her very happy. She didn't say this will convert you or that you'll, that you'll be very happy. She said, just do it for me, for your mother. He laughed at his mother to even suggest that he would go to confession. She cried and because of her tears, he said, all right, I'll accompany you to ours even though this will be very unpleasant. As they were going into the chapel of ours, they were accosted by a few young men that the young boy used to hang around with. They scorned him for going into the chapel. But just to please his mother, he went into the chapel with her, where the curé was teaching catechism to the children. Similar to the first story, as soon as this young man passed by the curé, uh, the curé's eyes met the young man's eyes, and the curé seemed to stare straight into the boy's soul. All of a sudden, he believed what he had heard, that the curé had power to read souls from a distance. He walked out of the church with his mother, and as soon as they walked out of the church, he fell into some of his old ways. He started hanging out with those couple of old friends who were in front of the church, and they began to deride the curé. They used to make, they made jokes at the expense of St. John Vianney. However, not too long after that, on another occasion, even though the boy was in the military already, his mother prevailed upon him to make another visit to the church of ours and the boy consented. As soon as they arrived, he wanted to get out of there. It was more repulsive or more repugnant than the first visit. It sounds like the devil was making it that way for him. But at that very moment, the curate came out of the sacristy, looked the boy right in the face, and signaled to him to go into the sacristy with him. And the boy responded and obeyed. When he was alone with the curé, he immediately fell to his knees and started to weep. The curé commanded him to go to the altar of St. Philomena and pray five Our Fathers and five Hail Marys. 
The boy became all emotional. His heart started to beat wildly. He stayed there forever without noticing any passage of time. When it was finished, he was completely a changed man. He did not know what was happening. He had to go outside and breathe some fresh air. His friends saw him and said, you look, you look like you've been converted. He said, perhaps so. Then he turned brusquely away from them and walked away from them. They tried to make fun of him from a distance uh, in order to make him be like them again and go with them. He absolutely refused the temptation, and then he became a most holy religious. That one, not even the name of the person is given, but that's a conversion by St. Philomena and the Curie of Ars. So we can be very thankful to St. Philomena for this kind of um, parish activity, for this kind of, um, uh, not just devotion in the church, but formation of a church, remaking of souls, formation of souls, everything in the honor and glory of God. And this has been the experience of any church where St. Philomena is preached from the pulpit and recommended in the, in the confessional. She makes it a center of devotion and mass conversion. So um, thanks be to God for St. Philomena. Hopefully she has a lot of influence on our church too. I know that um, Father Kimball used to speak a lot about her and also Father Lasky. And that's why we still have some of the sacramentals here, some of the cords, the prayer cards, uh, some of the books. Uh, that's because, let's say, St. Philomena is not something new here. She's been preached all along. I'm very grateful for that. So last week we were considering vestments for the Holy Mass. Uh, I said that in the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Testament had to wear, uh, had, to be, had to be dressed in magnificence under pain of death. How much more so in the New Testament time when we have the reality and not just prefigurements of the true sacrifice of the true Paschal Lamb. I told you the vestments at the time of the apostles were ordinary dress. That's how people dress with tunics and mantles and capes and all that sort of thing. Uh, but even with that ordinary dress of the apostles, they began to use finer cloth for those kind of uh, garments. And then they began to use fine materials in the cloth or on the cloth to make decorations. And so finally, it was obvious that these were not just, there was not just ordinary dress. Uh, you know that in the 16th century, when the Protestantism broke out, men started to wear ordinary street clothes. Not just, well, they called it the, the commemoration of the Last Supper. Uh, they didn't say the sacrifice of the Mass anymore, but they did gestures that kind of looked like the Mass still, and they were doing that in lay clothes. And by that ten time, men were wearing uh, slacks, and um, I don't know if they had the sport coat yet or suit coat, probably something like an overcoat. Uh, they were dressing like that to celebrate Mass. In no, sorry, not celebrate Mass, but some sort of commemoration of the Last Supper. Uh, the Protestants were. At that time, uh, the Catholic vestments were, according to the source I'm reading, the Catholic vestments were starting to lose some of their grandeur. And in the 20th century, 
the Pope said that the, the vestments must be restored to their former, um, not just beauty, but for, former beauty and magnificence. I told you that all vestments must be blessed for use. They have to be separated from ordinary common usage. That's why they're blessed and they're only used at the altar. If they decay in their use, they must be um, uh, disposed of by either burning them or committing them to the earth. And also it's not wrong uh, to salvage some parts of the vestments to be used as pieces for other vestment sets. Because a lot, of, a lot of times the vestments wear in one place, but they don't wear down in another, such as up here at the shoulders or where the maniple is always dragging across the chasuble. So I'm going to tell you now about how the vestments have reference to the different garments worn by our divine Lord during his passion. And that's very fitting because at the altar, the priest is repeating the sacrifice of our Lord or making present again the sacrifice of our Lord. We might think that the passion of our Lord is the worst time to pick his clothes to be used at the altar because those clothes were full of blood, uh, full of sweat, perhaps spit, spittle from uh, the executioners, and that's something ugly. So how can you associate what's ugly from the passion uh, with what's going on at the altar? And the answer is, in our Lord's passion, whether it's the crucifixion or the scourging or the crowning with thorns, he is proclaiming his royalty. He's proclaiming his royalty. Uh, his death on the cross is his victory over Satan and this world. So even though literally in the historic moment, his vestments were, his ornaments, his, sorry, his uh, clothes, garments, were something ugly in some sense because they were um, made for mockery. Nevertheless, the big picture, the big reality is that those vestments are the royalty of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is made present on the altar again. You might have seen, and I think this would come from the Philippines, you would see this, or other Spanish-speaking countries, what used to be a Spanish-speaking country, the Philippines. Um, you have you know, the crucified body of our Lord, or even the scourged body of our Lord, with all kinds of, you know, a lot of graphic details on the body with the wounds and so forth. But then they'll put a, um, you know, the cloth around his waist. It looks like a kingly robe. You know, it's, it's, it's white with all kinds of beautiful gold decorations on it and fringe and everything. We know that's not, that's not the way that our Lord was vested at that time. But this one, shine, one sign of his royalty, particularly through the passion that they're trying to show. I used to see uh, processions when I lived in uh, Latin America in Holy Week in honor of the Passion of Our Lord. Big statues and big beers, uh, you know, floats carried on shoulders of men. Uh, and uh, when they would show Our Lord carrying the cross in his uh, white garment, sometimes they would make it a purple garment, but it was full of gold filigree and fringe and everything beautiful not because our Lord was dressed exactly like that, but to show the royalty of his sacrifice, the royalty of his victory, which was made possible by his sacrifice. So on that note, uh, what are the vestments that a priest uses at Mass, and how, are, how do these recall the passion of our Lord? Um, there are six vestments. The first one is the amice, 
Amos, I would describe as a large handkerchief, uh, maybe twice the size of a handkerchief, that covers the shoulders and uh, the chest of the priest and most of his back with a strap that wraps around him as if he were putting on an apron around his shoulders, something like that. And this symbolizes the blindfold used on our Lord in the court of Caiaphas. So you might know uh, that as soon as Caiaphas said, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Our Lord, without any hesitation, says, you have said it. And not only this, but you will see the Son of Man descending upon the clouds of heaven. Meaning, I'm not only the Son of God right now, but you're going to have to meet with the Son of God at the end of time for what you judge right now. And at that moment, the um, high priest says, um, you know, he makes that fatal decision, that um, decision once and for all to say, now we're going to condemn him for making himself into God. And he is God. Uh, but and from there on out, that would be the decision of Caiaphas and the rest of them. Uh, and instead of taking the responsibility by himself, he made all of, the, all of his helpers, the other scribes and Pharisees, say, he's guilty of death. Reus mortis. Reus mortis. And they all just, uh, you know, these are the respectable men of society who hold up the laws of society, who are the, the ones that the other Israelite people look up to, for example, in models. And they just went into a feeding frenzy on our Lord, practically jumping on him to, to see who, who could give him the hardest blows. But they did blindfold him. And you know the words that said, prophesy, who is it that strikes thee? Meaning, if you're God you would know uh, who I am that's hitting you on the face right now, even though you have a blindfold. But we all know very well, not only could our Lord tell them who they are, but he could have snapped his fingers any second and just made them slip out of existence. Because our Lord just thinking about them being God is what keeps them in existence. And uh, those are the ones that were striking our Lord. So this amos that the priest uses makes us remember the blindfold used on the face of our Lord in the court of Caiaphas. The alb is another vestment. I would describe it as a tunic. And uh, it covers the whole body, except for the head and neck of the priest. And that recalls the tunic of mockery that King Herod put on our divine Lord. You remember that Pontius Pilate was relieved to hear that our Lord comes from Galilee because King Herod had jurisdiction over that part of Israel, even during the Roman occupation. And Pontius Pilate said, oh, this is good. I can get this judgment off of my hands by sending him to Herod. The only thing Herod wanted, you know, he's a corrupt man. Uh, that's the one who took uh, the wife of his brother. That's the one who had executed St. John the Baptist. Uh, and... Uh, all he wants from our Lord is not even the words, I'm sorry, because our Lord had referred to Herod as um, that old fox, meaning someone that uh, is smart enough to keep his own power, but at the same time, he's playing wicked tricks on everyone else. So that'd be the old fox. And um, 
King Herod is not even concerned about that. All he is concerned about is that our Lord, being God, work some sort of um, prodigy, some sort of fascination, fascinating magic trick, uh, so that King Herod can say that uh, I once had him in my court, and I let him go free because he worked a magic trick just for me. <laughs> but our, our Lord, you know, doesn't deal on that level. If our Lord's going to use a, a miracle, that's going to be in order to bring someone closer to the realization that there is a God and also bring them close to realization that they have sin, they need to repent of it, and need to improve their life. That's why our Lord works a miracle. He doesn't work a miracle to save his own life, and he certainly doesn't work a miracle just because some demonic, perverted man wants a good show. So our Lord does nothing. He doesn't even respond to the man. And Herod dismisses our Lord. Rather, Better said, he um, kind of kicks him out of his court, saying that he's just a fool. He's speaking about our divine Lord, that he's just a fool. And for that reason, um, he dresses him up like a fool. And we have our own idea of what a, a jester looks like, probably something from the medieval age that, you know, one pant leg is this color, the other pant leg is another color, and same thing with his, his blouse, but they're in reverse colors to the pants and with some sort of, you know, <laughs> crown on the top with bells at on the end. Uh, that's the idea of how a jester uh, dresses in the Middle Ages anyway. But back at the time of um, King Herod and our Lord, it was the white garment for the whole body. And that's how we dressed our Lord. Send him back to Pontius Pilate like that. Everyone uh, making derogatory remarks at our Lord as he passed by. The cincture um, is a um, something worn around the waist. In this case, with the vestments, it's a cord, and recall it recalls the cords which were attached to our Lord while he carried the cross. And even before that, the, when he was arrested in the Garden of Olives, he was, um, there were cords put around his body, also around his hands, uh, and pulled him in every direction. So the priest wears a cincture in honor of that, that he's pulled in every direction, that he's called upon to sacrifice himself. Also, the cincture which the priest wears at Mass uh, reminds us of, of the lashes which were used on our Lord for his scourging. Also, the thongs, leather, leather thongs, which tore the flesh of our Lord. That's what the um, cincture reminds us of. So we've been to the amice, the alb, and the cincture. We have three more vestments to go. The maniple. That's a um, vestment right around the left arm of the priest and uh, only on one arm. It recalls sorrow. That's what it symbolizes. Why do, we, why do we want to think of sorrow while the, the Mass is being celebrated? Well, because as the priest is united to the sacrifice of our Lord, he has to admit that he's going to be in contact with a lot of sorrow. But if he offers up that sorrow in union with the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, that sorrow will become joy. The maniple has its origin in um, St. Peter, the apostle, 
the first, the prince of the apostles. He denied our Lord three times on the night of, on the, night of the Passion. When he was um, confronted by the glance of our Lord, he began to weep. Eventually, our Lord would ask a threefold apology from St. Peter in the form of saying, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. And uh, St. Peter, not just from that day, but even from the Passion onwards, was known to weep and weep and weep. For that one time he said, I'll have nothing to do. I've had nothing to do with that man. I don't even know him. St. Peter would weep for the rest of his life for that. But it was a good kind of weeping because it always made him understand that by himself he was not that strong. His strength all came from our divine Lord. That was his greatness. He wept for how inconsiderate and how cruel he had been to our Lord by saying he never knew him. But again, a good kind of tears that always made him have more confidence in our Lord and more love for our Lord's mercy. So that's the maniple. It's worn on the left arm, and it reminds us of the fetters. We would say uh, fetters. Nowadays, we would say handcuffs, which were on our Lord's hands, which bound the, bound the hands of our Lord in his arrest and also the scourging of the pillar. I think the fetters were finally taken off when they gave our Lord the cross to carry because then he would need his hands to hold it. The stole is worn by the priest around his neck. Some would say that it's, around, it's worn around his shoulders. This reminds us of our Lord carrying the burden of the cross, a weight which fell on one shoulder for sure, but then on the other shoulder, depending on what side he was carrying the cross on. Uh, it reminds the priest of the heavy burden of the cross. And it's quite significant. Uh, every time that a priest gives a sacrament or a sacramental, he should wear a stole. So you can never think of a time that a priest is giving Holy Communion, eats even outside of Mass, when he doesn't have a stole on. You can rarely think of a priest giving you a confession or giving you the sacrament of penance without a stole on. It might happen. If a priest is in a car with you and you ask him to hear your confession, he doesn't have a stole on him. But that's very uh, uncommon. But the point is that every time a priest exercises his priesthood by sacrament or sacramental, he should have a stole on. And why is that? Because his power to bless anything, to consecrate anything, to give any grace to a soul is coming from the cross of our Lord. So just as our Lord carried the cross on his shoulders, the priest carries the stole on his shoulders in honor of that when he gives any sacrament or sacramental. And finally, the chasuble. That's probably the most noticeable vestment and the most spectacular vestment, if we're going to use that word. Uh, it would be most identified with the priesthood, is chasuble. It comes from a Latin word, casula, which is the word for small house because it's as if the priest is covered in a house and when he wears that vestment. He's completely covered with it. He loses his identity behind it or under it because it's all around him, at least in its original form. It's now sleeve-free now, and also the front is not as the big as the back and that sort of thing, but it's still a chasuble. This recalls the purple robe which the soldiers put on our divine Lord in order to mock him. They said, you're a king, here's a purple cloth and none of your 
royalty, and they put that uh, purple robe which they found lying in the corner someplace, they put that on our Lord with all of its holes and tears and moth-eaten, and they, uh, they made a mockery of him, they made a mock king out of him. That's recalled by the priests wearing the chasuble. They knelt before him and they hailed him as a king in false, in mock praise. Those are the six vestments. I covered them kind of quickly when talking about how they remind us of the passion of our Lord. Now I'm going to consider something else, how they actually uh, signify, each, each vestment sim symbolizes or signifies a certain virtue. But hopefully, for your sake right now, you would be able to name the six vestments in their order. They are amice, alb, cincture, maniple, stole, chasuble. Those are the six vestments. Uh, for your information, uh, when Vatican II came out, or let's say the new mask came out, the first vestment, vestment they disposed of is the maniple. This one around the forearm of the left arm. And they had a couple of reasons. First of all, they make it look justified. They said it's a little bit too sloppy. It gets in the way of offering mass, and it's a, a threat to the vessels on the altar. Okay, sounds kind of uh, edifying. And then they say things like, uh, it's something extra, and it's unbalanced, because it's only on one side of the body, not on the other side of the body. Maybe, maybe not. Finally, the reason they never give you, but we all know it's the truth, is because the maniple, like I said, symbolizes that sorrow which unites us to the cross of our Lord. The new Mass is not about sacrifice anymore. The new Mass is about man looking at himself and considering how good he is. And sorrow and sacrifice do not have a placement anymore. So that's the verse, first vestment that they got rid of. And you can see signs of that because um, sometimes we'll come into an inheritance or something like that from a church of the different vestments they have. And we get the vestments and they don't have maniples. It's because they, they got rid of them early on. Or another phenomenon which, is, phenomenon, which is kind of in the same vein, is when we receive a large cache of vestments from a church, uh, there won't, there, there'll, be, there'll be a lot of black vestments in very good condition. And you wonder, where did that come from? That's well, because they stopped using black vestments 50 or 60 years ago, and they stayed in their pristine condition. And they, they don't use black at funerals anymore. They use white, with the assumption that the soul is already in heaven. It's not time to say prayers for them in purgatory anymore. All right, so uh, going over those vestments again, we're talking about their significance how they signify virtues. So the amice, I've already described it to you, but once again, it's a linen envelope which covers the head, at least at the beginning, when the priest is putting the vestments on. That's interesting. He covers his head with it, just kind of a gesture. Then he lets it fall on his shoulders, and he ties it up. And then it covers the head, then the neck, and the shoulders. One meaning is that it is the helmet of salvation, as St. Paul talks about in the um, Ephesians, I think, but I could get it wrong, when he talks about the um, spiritual armor. 
Well, it's not exactly the strength of a helmet, but why would we call it that? It's because it, during the Mass, the priest is going to be uh, distracted at least, you could say attacked or invaded, by thoughts that have nothing to do with Mass. And sometimes, you know, thoughts might come into the mind which are not even legitimate for anyone to be thinking of. That's why we ask for, we put on this helmet of salvation to protect the priest from evil thoughts during the Holy, sac during the holy Sacrifice. And um, uh, we use it in the Roman Rite. Um, we only cover the head while we're vesting with it, and then we drop it down to the shoulders right away. There are other rites, I think the uh, Dominican Rite, maybe even the Ambrosian Rite, where they actually wear that amice on their head for a while during Mass, um, which is very impressive when they do it, and it looks correct when they do it. If I were to do it, it would look a little bit silly. But uh, it's a helmet, a spiritual helmet, protects from evil thoughts during Mass. It is, also a it is also a symbol of hope, the helmet of salvation is. Why? Because the supernatural virtue of hope is our protection, like a helmet, in combat against all the enemies of salvation. So being protected from the enemy symbolizes the virtue of Hope. It elevates the soul above all that is earthly. The devil is repulsed so that he does not rob the soul of devotion and of the fruits of the sacrifice. That's the amos. Also, since the amos um, falls around the neck and the shoulders, uh, it has something to do with something to do with our voice. Our vocal cords are in the neck. And the amos is um, protecting this area. In fact, okay, so I'm sorry, uh, it gives self control over one's speech. When the bishop vests the subdeacon with the amos, that's when the amos is given to us, is when a, you know, a seminarian is a subdeacon, the bishop says, Receive the um, amos by which the restraint of the tongue is signified, because it's resting around the neck here where, you know, the voice comes from. St. James tells us that those who control the tongue are a perfect man. So the amos has this double effect of giving hope by restricting everything foreign from coming into the mind, and then it rests, rests around the neck, which gives us a holy silence. We only speak holy words when we're at the altar. There, that's finally the amos. Now I move on to the alb. The alb is all white. There's no such thing as a different colored alb. Uh, I think sometimes gold decorations are allowed on it, but usually not. It should be a white vestment. It symbolizes spotless purity. It's made of linen. Like we said last week, linen is um, a chore to maintain. And not only when you wash it, you don't just have to launder it, but you have to do some other treatment so that you get the stains out and you make it look clean and even shiny again. The cloth is shiny because linen has that kind of um, uh, surface to it. A priest is one who is washed in the blood of the lamb. 
I'm sorry, his prayer is, washed in the blood of the Lamb, may I enjoy eternal delights. In the book of the Apocalypse, we read, he that shall overcome shall be clothed in white garments. So just as we wash and bleach linen in the rain and the sun, so the soul becomes pure only by many austerities. So it's normal for a priest to be on his knees. That's a very normal posture for a priest. Uh, he has to get used to uh, not just dealing with joyful situations, but also dealing with situations that are adverse to him. And at the end of the, end of the day, he should be able to say, uh, thank you for the joys of this day, and also thank you for the difficulties of this day, because they've united me to your sacrifice. And the difficulties of this day have also helped me to get separated from my own selfishness. The priest must be a man of many austerities, and the alb is a vestment that is used to being, uh, it's, it's difficult to keep clean. We should endeavor by prayer and tears to regain innocence and beauty of the soul. The angels themselves tremble to be at the altar. Therefore, the priest must be innocent in hands and clean of heart. If the angels are trembling at the altar, and they're much higher spirits than we are, how much should the priest be trembling when he's at the altar? And how much should he be protected when he's at the altar? By this innocence and purity which the alb symbolizes. The priest must be free not only from sin, but also from worldly, faulty, and dangerous inclinations and attachments. And just to give you some uh, etymology of the word alb, uh, the word albus in Latin means white. <clears throat> so this vestment is always white, <clears throat> and that's why it's called alb, alb in honor of whiteness. The cincture. Um, you might notice that the alb is a, a big vestment. The alb's tunic is a big vestment. It's usually about twice as wide as we really need it for our body. Uh, kind of sloppy around the, around the collar and the neck. I, I never could figure that out. You know, a human head is about that big. You need a hole about that big to get your head through. And the hole that they make in an alb is about that big, <laughs> and it can open about that wide, and there's a tie on it. So uh, you think, my goodness, this was made, made for rather large heads. Uh, and there's another design. It actually looks like a surplus, you know, the vestment that an altar boy wears. He wears a cassock and a surplus, the white part. Uh, sometimes they have, they have that other design that the head goes through and there's no tie. But in any case, it's rather large and flowing, and it's like that on purpose, to show that the priest is completely surrounded by this purity. And uh, as you can guess, if the priest is going to wear an alb without any kind of um, tying up around his waist, it's going to be too sloppy. And every time the priest will try to go up the stairs, he'll trip on it. So that's why there's a girdle around the waist, which is the cincture. By the way, I, meant, I forgot to mention this part of the alb. Uh, is um, When you see an altar boy just dressed with cassock and surplus, or sometimes you see a priest with a surplus on. In fact, usually when we're at the pulpit, we always have a surplus on. Um, that's another point I'll tell you about later. But the surplus uh, we all received in the seminary uh, when we became um, 
when we, when we received the cassock. And the bishop, or the priest who gave it to us at that time, said the same prayer which a bishop would normally pray when he gives the alb to a cleric. So we've already technically received the alb as young seminarians in the form of a surplus, because a surplus is actually an alb um, abbreviated. Instead of coming all the way to the floor, it comes um, halfway, uh, right about mid-thigh for the, the seminarian. It doesn't quite touch the knees, but that's an abbreviated alb. So the altar boys can think of that. They're wearing vestments that already belong to a priest. Um, so back to the, um, uh, the cincture. It's used to gird up the alb around the waist so that serious work can be done. Uh, the Christian life is justly represented as a time of labor, of combat, of pilgrimage. So it's not always easy to be a Christian. You have to be ready to do battle against the devil, and you have to be ready to perform sanctifying works, positive sanctifying works as a Christian. So um, we can think of uh, St. Peter. On a few occasions, he girded himself so that he would be ready to go meet our Lord on the, on the shore of the, of the sea. Or uh, our Lord himself told St. Peter, when you were a boy, uh, you got to do uh, whatever you wanted, and you were free. But now as an adult, and especially as an apostle, you're going to have to wear a girdle so that people can pull you all different directions and to go where you will not, willest not. So that's what the uh, cincture is symbolizing here, is that girding up so that we're ready to do battle ready to do positive things. Um, therefore, a soldier, a Christian soldier, may be victorious over Satan, the world, and the flesh, and thus tra travel onward to his true home, which is heaven. Continuing, the cincture, or the girdle, also symbolizes the subjugation of the flesh by mortification and self-denial. So you might have noticed a lot of, a a lot of us priests we wear a cincture not only for mass, which is, looks like a cord at that time, but we wear a cincture all day long with our cassock. We call it a we call it a sash, or a um, you know some other word, <laughs> a sash or cincture. Uh, but uh, it is for the same reason. And in fact, the prayer we use when we put this on this black belt you see me wearing now, and the prayer we use for putting on this belt is the same prayer that we use at the mass for putting on the cincture, and it has to do with preserving purity. Because the temptation of purity it would be usually in this part of the body. Temptation against purity would usually be in this part of the body. Holy purity is the most beautiful adornment of the priestly heart. And we've discussed that before. And the, con the context was every time the consecration happens, it's another incarnation of our divine Lord. And when was and where was the first incarnation? It was the words of our Blessed Mother. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, and be it done unto me according to thy, thy word. And at that moment, God came down from heaven in the person of his Son and became one with us. Why? Because there, there was this beautiful perfect, spotless maid, the Virgin Mary, ready to receive him. And that's what causes this identity or affinity between our Blessed Mother and priests. 
She had to be perfectly pure for that to happen. I don't know if a priest will ever get to that kind of purity. He'll get to the level of purity which uh, his soul is capable of. Our Lady's soul was capable of much more. But he should do everything he can to maintain every ounce of purity that he can in his capacity. It is the most beautiful adornment of the priestly heart because the priestly heart in this sense is very much like the Blessed Mother's heart, the Marian heart. And what is her outstanding virtue? Oh, purest of creatures, the Virgin Mary. The host should be offered and handled only by pure virginal hands. Prophecy of Zachary, Zachariah, referring to priests, daily is granted him the grace of being refreshed by the wheat of the elect and of drinking the wine that springeth forth virgins. That should be the priestly virtue, is the purity. So we still have maniple, stole, and chasuble. I tend to separate them from um, amos, alb, and cincture, because amos, alb, and cincture are always three pre-vestments. They're usually white, and they go before the vestments of the color of the day. So maniple, I used to think this came from the word manus, which means hand. And back then, they used to call all of this the hand. Uh, but it seems now it comes from another word, manipulo, which is sheaf or sheaves, as in sheaves of wheat. And I'll explain that in just, in just a second. So the maniple is a vestment which comes since the 10th century. So for me, that kind of grates with what I just told you about St. Peter, that he used to wear one all the time, not just during Mass. Or maybe I didn't tell you. I told you a lot about St. Peter. <laughs> he used to weep so much. And uh, for that reason, he kept a handkerchief on his arm and would constantly wipe his face of the tears. I guess I got carried away in the story and never got to the conclusion of it. So uh, that would mean this vestment goes back to St. Peter. But now I'm saying it only comes to, comes to us in the 10th century. Maybe it was a recalling of what St. Peter used to do. It is the distinctive garment of the subdeacon. So you probably know that uh, there are several levels of holy orders. And the major orders, from which you can never back out anymore, are subdeacon, deacon, and priest. At that moment, you receive vestments that really belong to the altar. Before that, not, so much, not at all. But now, at this time, you receive vestments that belong to the altar. Uh, the subdeacon receives the maniple. It is known as the maniple of weeping and sorrow. This is the prayer the priest says when he puts it on. Put on me the maniple of weeping and sorrow so that I may receive the reward of labor. It has to do with so uh, re uh, sowing in difficulty so that you can reap in glory. And then a... Um, reference to this kind of sorrow in the Old Testament from the Book of Wisdom. Going, they went and wept, casting their seed. So he's sowing in sorrow. But coming, they shall come with joyfulness, carrying their sheaves. As the result, the, the, the result of sowing in sorrow is to reap in joy or joyfulness, carrying their sheaves, sheaves of wheat from the reaping, and the sheaf in Latin is manipulo. 
He who soweth in blessings shall also reap of blessings. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Words of our divine Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. So nothing wrong with uh, sorrow and pain uh, in this life in order to reap a reward of great joy. And since the maniple represents weeping and sorrow, it is to be used only with the sacrifice of the Mass. It is not to be used outside of it. So I told you cases where the stole is used outside of Mass. Every time the priest exercises his ministry, he has a stole on. But you never see a, stole, a maniple being used outside of Mass. You might even notice if you have a sung Mass on a Sunday, it's usually preceded by the asparagus. For the asparagus, the priest wears his everything except he wears everything except a chasuble and a maniple. He's using a cope, but nothing on his arm. When he finishes the asparagus, he usually goes to what we call the sedilia, that's the priest's chair, where the maniple and chasuble are waiting for him, and he puts that on just to offer the sacrifice, because that's related to the sorrow. And of course, the chasuble, that's also unique to the sacrifice. I'm going to make a little parenthesis here uh, for something you might have noticed and wondered about. Uh, sometimes the priest will take off a stole, I'm sorry, take off his maniple in order to preach. Uh, and sometimes, back in the days when people had pulpits that climbed up one of the pillars of the church, you'll see the priest take off his maniple and his chasuble to go up there. And that would be because he's walking outside of the sanctuary. He's not in the area of sacrifice anymore. Therefore, he takes off the two vestments that have identity with the sacrifice, the chasuble and the maniple. So, so uh, you get uh, some priests like me that only go halfway and I take off my uh, maniple at the, at the altar and I come here because I guess I'm outside of the sanctuary. Some priests will do that even when they're inside the sanctuary preaching at a sort of, a sort of gesture in the direction of the way preaching used to be. It used to be outside the sanctuary and they're not offering the sacrifice so they take off the maniple even though they stay in the sanctuary. And then some priests leave the maniple on because, because they're not climbing a pillar anymore to give the sermon and they're not really outside the sanctuary. I'm sort of inside the sanctuary by extension here. <laughs> pulpit has the exact same decoration as the communion rail, so I'm sort of in it still. But that's to give you a little explanation if, you've seen, if you have seen different habits of priests uh, when they go to preach, if they're taking off the maniple or not. Very good, so we continue. Uh, oh, uh, in case you were wondering, a practical point back to the maniple, uh, how does that stay on his arm? Uh, in the old days, they've, they've had different systems. They've, in the old days, there used to be a bow, just like tying your shoes. They had two straps in there, and obviously the altar boy would have to do it for him because there's no way we can get two hands in there to tie a strap. And then a very common way, which was used until I don't know how, how long ago, was to have a piece of um, cloth of the maniple, kind of in the, in the, in the decoration or the, the style of the frame, um, the, the border of the maniple, which sort of extends out 
in such a way that he could put a pin through that, and that would hold the maniple to his vestment, to his uh, alb, and it wouldn't fall off. And then the most efficient way, and what I would say the best way, ever since elastic was invented, they've figured out how to put an elastic strap connected to the, man connected to the maniple, which keeps that fixed right to the forearm of the priest. Uh, we continue. The stole. The stole signifies every kind of dress. In a certain sense, you have all the vestments encapsulated in the stole. It is the authority of the priest. It's bearing the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is um, um, the magnificence, magnificence of the vestments because the stole will be decorated in the same theme as the rest of the vestments. So it is the badge of the priest's authority and is used for every sacrament and sacramental. You know, if you see the Pope uh, sitting for a photograph, uh, he'll be usually be using a very festive stole, which is known as the stole of St. Peter. Just that one stole symbolizes all the authority of the Pope in that case. The stole is used by deacons, priests, and bishops. Subdeacons do not use a stole yet. Deacons use a stole, but it does not cover both their shoulders. It covers only one shoulder and gets draped across the body on a diagonal, showing that the deacon does not yet carry the whole burden of the cross. The priest does, and the bishop does. He carries the whole burden of the cross, so he wears the stole over his neck and shoulders. When the priest uses the stole for mass, he crosses it in front of his body like an X. Why does he do that? To show that Christ is before him. The cross of Christ is what leads him. Therefore, he crosses that in front of his body when he puts on the stole. And it's held in the cross shape by um, kind of locking it in with two sides of the cincture at his waist. There's a special way to make the knot and then to pull the ends of the cincture against the stole so that it stays fixed in that position. When a bishop celebrates Mass, he does not cross the stole in front of his chest. And why is that? Because the bishop is already wearing what they call a pectoral cross. And it's a different pectoral cross for the Mass. He has a pectoral cross which he wears all day. If I'm not mistaken, he takes it off when he's going to celebrate Mass. And then he puts on another, a different pectoral cross over the alb when he's going to celebrate Mass. So when the bishop gets to the stole, he does not cross the stole in front of his body. He leaves it hanging straight. And that brings up a point which is useful for you to know. Priests in the Novus Ordo, when they celebrate Mass, they don't make a cross out of the stole in front of their chest anymore. They, they let, let it hang perfectly straight in front of them. There can, be, there can be two reasons for that. I don't know if they've said them yet, but here they are. First one is, we don't have to think so much about the cross at Mass anymore. That one sounds the most fundamental to me. It always goes back to these same fundamental principles, which they seem to, you know, pseudo-principles, which they seem to um, implement uh, in many different ways. No, don't have to think so hard about the cross. Our Lord on the cross is not leading you anymore. That's one reason. The other reason would be there's so much democracy in the church anymore that uh, they don't like to show these distinctions between bishop and ordinary priest. They would like to show the ordinary priest is on the level with the bishop. So he, the priest, just like the bishop, wears the stole hanging on both sides instead of crossed in front of him.
So that is the badge of authority of the priest. Now, what virtue does it symbolize, the stole? It symbolizes the yoke and the burden of the service of the sanctuary. Perhaps priests have a lot of privileges. I'm the first one to admit it. But it comes with a burden and responsibility. Uh, the uh, yoke and the burden of the priesthood are necessary for the worthy administration of the spiritual office. As if to say that the priest is only as good as he is living a life of sacrifice. If he's not living that life of sacrifice, he's losing his authority as pastor of your soul. Our Lord helps in bearing this yoke by the countless graces of the calling to the priesthood. There are many graces. There's all kinds of help we get from the Blessed Mother that probably laymen and laywomen do not receive. There's all kinds of help that we get directly from our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament that perhaps laymen and laywomen do not receive. These are the graces of the calling. They are necessary for us to bear this yoke. The sufferings are great, but the joys are even greater. The stole, so it is, what virtue is the stole giving us? It's giving us this virtue of being able to bear the yoke with our Lord. It remind, reminds us of the garment of sanctity, the garment of glory, constituting the robe of immortality which are spiritual garments that we're going to wear in heaven. The garment of sanctity, the garment of glory, constituting the robe of immortality. And finally, uh, the last vestment, the last point of this evening, is the chasuble. Like I told you before, the small house. It is the principal vestment of the priest. Why is that? Because it is the charity of Christ which completely covers the priest. When we think of the charity of Christ, what should we be thinking of? We should be thinking of this divine life which exists between the th three persons of the Blessed Trinity, which is incarnated, shown to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the life of charity. He's like walking charity. When the priest goes to the altar to celebrate Mass, he's going to put on this charity of Christ to offer the sacrifice. Completely covers him, at least it used to, the chasuble. The front side of the chasuble represents Christ. Christ who leads the priest to greater love of God. The back of the chasuble is for the faithful, so they can see this charity of Christ. It is for the faithful, and it also represents the cross of our Lord, which the priest carries for the faithful. So that's why usually on the back of a chasuble you'll see a cross or you'll see a yoke. That's to show you that the priest is carrying the cross for the faithful. Um, yeah. The priest must bear the yoke and burden of the Lord with love. In order to bear the burden of the faithful, the priest must first of all be pure himself. And that's why the bishop, when he is ordaining the, bishop, the priest, when he unfolds the back of the chasuble over the back of the priest, the bishop prays, 
that the Lord may clothe him with the garment of innocence and purity. So the priest has to have this purity in order to be the sacrificer for the faithful. And the bishop prays that he may always have this innocence and purity in order to bear this burden of the cross for the faithful. The back of the chasuble is for the faithful. The front of the chasuble is for the priest to be directed towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Charity is absolutely indispensable, is the absolutely indispensable virtue for the priest. The, chari the priest may be self-sacrificing, he may be humble, he may be generous, he may be, may be able to withstand a lot of burden, but if he's doing, a, doing it without charity, it all doesn't count. Why is that? Charity is the divine life in the soul. Charity is the life of the Blessed Trinity and the love they have between each other. If the priest is going to carry out all kinds of virtues but not have that love of God, that divine life of God, the Trinity, in his soul, all these other virtues like the humility and the fasting and the sacrificing and the extra work, all of that is not going to have value. It's not going to have purpose. It will be sterile because it's not informed by the life of the Trinity in the soul of the priest. So he must have charity first of all. And that's why this vestment, the chasuble, completely covers him. He must be completely covered, enveloped, enveloped in this charity of God. So those are the uh, six vestments and their uh, symbolic meaning of um, the, very, the various virtues. Let me just read you a paragraph or two of... Um, the general instruction of the new mass regarding vestments. For the church in the round, that would be the modern altar, modern church, the simple altar, it's kind of a table with a few wooden legs, the unadorned chasuble, the polyester alb, not linen, not linen, the stubby candlesticks, the bowling trophy chalice, the abstract crucifix, the lone statue, and above all, the bare wall. These are the real tradition, quote-unquote tradition. These are the real tradition of the Mass of Pope Paul VI. That's, that's how we describe what you see at other churches. Church in the round, that means you have a circular building with sort of amphitheater building with an altar in the, in the center of it all. Simple altar, unadorned chasuble, polyester alb, stubby candlesticks, bowling trophy chalice, abstract crucifix, lone statue, and bare wall. That would be the uh, Novus Ordo. And the context of that paragraph is this. Apparently, uh, it's become popular since about the 1990s or maybe the beginning of the 2000s to uh, use stately or restored vestments in the Novus Ordo Mass since about the 1990s. I think that comes from a younger generation of priests that want to do things a little bit traditional, even though they're still celebrating the Novus Ordo. Uh, and they choose such things as an ornate, ornate Baroque chasuble, which is completely out of harmony with what they're doing in their Novus Ordo Mass because the Baroque chasuble symbolizes a separation of the priest from the faithful. 
You know, he's up there, they're down there, but he's offering the sacrifice for them. The mentality, the mentality of the Novus Ordo Mass is that the assembly is celebrating the Eucharist with the priests, so he should not be setting himself off so much from them. But some churches are, churches are doing this now. They're bringing in traditional vestments because they got tired of the banality, banality, uh, mundane, mundane atmosphere of the Novus Ordo Mass. Uh, this Baroque chasuble uh, symbolized, oh, sorry, what the sacred, what the liturgy for the Novus Ordo asks for is that there be noble beauty rather than mere sumptuous display. And what they would call noble beauty are the ugly things I just described to you, unadorned chasuble, polyester, alb, and stubby candlesticks. Uh, and they would accuse us of having sumptuous display by using a beautiful Baroque, chasuble, and all the other vestments I described to you. So let us hang on to the things that are traditional uh, because they unite us to the various virtues I just described for you for each of the vestments, which are necessary for offering the holy sacrifice. We'll say our prayer. <clears throat>